Good morning, Gateway. If you'd like to make your way to your seats. It's a lively crowd this morning. We just want to start out with a couple of announcements this morning. First of all, just to welcome everyone here to Gateway, to our Gateway family. Uh, we're glad to see those who are members and regular attenders. And if this is your first time, just a very warm welcome to you. We're very excited to gather. We really consider it a, a privilege to be able to gather together each week on the Lord's Day. So welcome here. Just a couple of announcements before we get started. For our visitors, there's a couple of opportunities coming up. Uh, for membership, we do a Discover Gateway class, and we're going to be having uh, a dinner this afternoon at Grady's uh, house. There's still some slots open if you're interested. And if you are interested in attending that, that's step one in our membership process. Could you please let Grady or his wife Julia know uh, that you'll be coming? Uh, but you're more than welcome to come if you're here today and would like to come. Uh, and then a new foundations membership class. This is going to be the first time that we've done this, and it's going to start uh, next week. It'll be a four-week uh, class where during the Sunday school hour, and we're really excited about this. We've just put this together uh, as the eldership, uh, and this will be the first time for folks to actually run through that. So please plan on attending if you'd like to, to come to that. Uh, for everyone, there's a couple of opportunities coming up. Uh, there's a missionary lunch next Sunday uh, with Kayla Watley's uh, brother. Uh, they're the uh, Harper family. Uh, they serve in Belgium uh, with the International Mission Board. Uh, and we're just going to have a time after church where you can stay and have some pizza and just spend some time with them uh, for some fellowship and to hear from them. And then we're going to have a fall fun night uh, with the church. And, and I really want to encourage folks to, to come to this, uh, young, old. Uh, it's going to be at the uh, Iron Horse Ranch on Friday, October the 14th. There'll be games and inflatables, a hot dog dinner. Uh, and actually, if you're interested in camping, uh, I won't be camping, but if you're interested in camping, uh, you can do that, uh, and there'll be details uh, on and registration on the website, the church website. So please, if you have any questions about that, Scott and Janine, are you all here? There's Scott, there's Janine. Uh, they can answer any questions about the Iron Horse uh, Ranch for that. So just as we prepare our hearts to worship, just want to read uh, from Psalm 63. Oh God, and would you please stand as we prepare to worship? Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary. To see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And, O oh Lord, as we enter into this time of worship, we would ask that you would become our all-consuming satisfaction, Lord. For 
your glory and our greatest joy. In Christ's name we pray.
that song was about Christ, who is why we are gathered here today, the one who saves, the one who transforms lives. You may be seated. I just want to pray for us, Lord. We just exalt you, Jesus Christ. Thank you. 
celebration of Saint Stephen's. Pray for those here today, Lord, that our ears would be open, eyes would be open to see, hearts would be open to believe and receive your word today. Go out of us and transform our lives as we proclaim salvation. So, Lord, thank you for the worship of the Lord has made us today. Just ask your blessings. First to fourth graders, you are dismissed to kids' worship. First to fourth graders, dismissed to kids' worship for Miss Jennifer. Well, good morning, Gateway family. While the first to fourth graders are on their way out, if you will find 1 Peter chapter 2 in your copy of God's Word, 1 Peter chapter 2. We are continuing our year-long journey to this amazing letter, this amazing epistle, and I'm excited that we get to continue it this morning. Now, as you find 1 Peter chapter 2, let me just remind you that last week, Peter began a new section of his thought. He began talking about our identity together, our identity as the church. Remember, he described us as living stones that are being built together. He was telling us what the church is, and he was showing us our calling to glorify God with our whole lives. That God has called us to use all parts of our lives together to glorify him. That was in verses 4 to 6 of chapter 2. Now, Peter's going to pick up that thought again, but not until verse 9. We'll come to that one next week. What we come to today is an interjection in Peter's thought, but it's a very important interjection. After describing us as living stones, describing the church, and then coming back next week in verse 9 to see what it looks like and how we live that out, he pauses to tell us something very important and very weighty. And that's what we come to in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. This morning. Now, before we jump into this text, friends, I just want to be upfront about this text. This is not an easy text. This is a weighty text, and I have felt the weight of this text all week long studying and preparing. There's certain texts of Scripture that are just fun to work through. There's other texts of Scripture that there's just a weight about them, and this is one of those. But, friends, that is why we preach through books of the Bible. This is not a text that most pastors are going to want to be like, I'm really excited about preaching 1 Peter 2 8 today. This is not the text that most of us would want to run to, but we preach the whole counsel of God's word and preach the books of the Bible because we need the easy ones and the hard ones. We need the joy-filled ones and the ones with a good bit of weight as well. Now, why is this text challenging for us? Two reasons up front just to prepare you for what we're going to dig into this morning. The first reason is this text makes us think deeply about the lostness around us. This text makes us come face-to-face with the reality of non-believers and their fate. And it does this for people that we know and the people that we love. Because many of us carry burdens of people that we love dearly who do not know Christ. And this text is weighty because it reminds us of the path that they are on. And so, friends, as we talk about this text this morning, it is okay, it is good for us to grieve the path that people that we, are, that we love are on. As we talk about some hard things here, it's good for our hearts to feel grief over the path that loved ones we know and friends we know are on. But I pray that this would also lead us to a renewed passion to pursue them, as we'll see in a few minutes. But there's a second weightiness to this text as well. This text not only makes us come to terms with lostness, it makes us come to terms with the absolute sovereignty of God, God's rule and reign over all things. We live in a culture that loves equal opportunity. We, love, we live in a culture that loves this idea that everyone just charts their own destiny and you're in control of your life. And this verse absolutely shatters the notion that we have any control over our own destiny or over our own life. It shows us God is a sovereign ruler who ordains the course of all human history, who ordains the paths of individuals, who's sovereign over all things, 
including salvation. So friends, it's okay to struggle with some of the things that we're going to read this morning. Our little tiny, tiny, finite brains are trying to understand how infinite God ordains things to work in his universe. And our little tiny brains are trying to understand how infinite God has ordained things to happen in his universe and what's happening in our lives. So it's okay if you feel a struggle over these things. It's okay if you feel some grieving over some of the things as we think about people we know on these paths. So with that in view, I want us to come to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. I know we studied the first part of verse 6 last week, but that ties into our thought for today. So we're going to pick back up in verse 6 to 8 this morning. As we read, I want you to see a contrast here. Peter in this interjection lays out a very strong contrast. So be looking for the contrast of how people respond to Christ. But it's not just the contrast of how they respond to Christ. It's a contrast of the results of the path that they are on. And there's other contrasts as well. But look for the contrast as you read. Can I ask you to stand please in honor of the reading of the word of God. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 6 through 8. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. Lord, we're thankful even for texts like this that bring us to the end of ourselves, that show us, Lord, how little we know and how little we understand, but how big and glorious and infinite and sovereign you are. So Lord, I pray you would take care of this text today and you give us clarity of understanding as we deal with the weightiness of this text. Would you give us understanding of it that will transform our lives and change us? And Lord, I pray as we think about the reality of our faith and the reality of lostness around us, that, Lord, you would use us to transform us to do what you have called us to do. So we pray you'll have your way this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So before we jump in the text, let me give you the main idea of this text that I want us to wrestle with and think about this morning. So here's the big picture of this, these verses in First Peter. It's this. The gospel requires from every person a response of either trusting Christ or rejecting him. The gospel requires from every person a response of either trusting Christ or rejecting him. The gospel, this message that Peter's been talking about all throughout this letter so far, this message of how we gain salvation through faith in Christ, this message of grace alone through faith alone in Christ Jesus alone. Friends, this is not just a nice story. This demands a response from us. Hearing it requires us to respond. There's only two responses to the gospel. We'll unpack these in a minute, but it's trusting Christ or it's rejecting him. There's no other response. There's no neutral. There's no middle ground. We either are going to trust or we're going to reject Christ as we hear the gospel. Now, that means, friends, in this room right now, every single one of us has done one of these things. And one of us currently is doing this. Every single one of us here right now is either trusting in Christ right now in this moment or we're rejecting Christ in this moment. There is no in-between. All of us are doing one of these two things with a message that we have been presented with. Now, to unpack this this morning, I want to ask four questions of each category. Again, this is a weighty text, and so this is how my mind tries to get around this, and I hope it'll serve you as well. But I want to ask four questions of each category, believing or trusting and not believing or rejecting. So our four questions are, what does it mean to believe or to not believe? What are the results of believing or not believing? What is the reason why people believe or do not believe? And then why do we need to know these truths? So again, the four questions to guide us, we're actually, we actually eight questions we're asking of each category. But what does it mean to believe or not believe? What are the results of believing or not believing? What is the reason why people believe or do not believe? 
And why do we need to know these truths? Friends, God has given these to us for a reason. And though these may not be the verses that appear in our devotional readings or that we have framed hanging up in our living rooms or bathrooms or kitchens at home, God has given them to us in his infinite wisdom for a reason. I want us to think through why we need to understand these truths as well. Let's look at the first response to the gospel, to the message of salvation found in Christ. So the first response is to believe, to believe. Now look at verse 6 where he begins to lay this out for us. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So our first question about believing here, what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to believe? It says here in verse 6, whoever believes in him, him being Christ, what do we mean when we say believe? Let me remind us, we saw this at the beginning of 1 Peter, in Scripture when we talk about faith or believing, those are synonyms, we talk about faith or believing, faith or belief involves three things. It involves, first of all, knowing who God has revealed himself to be. There's a knowledge component of faith or belief. We're knowing God for who he's revealed himself to be. Now, we see that even in this text here, that faith has an object here. Whoever believes in him, in Christ, the cornerstone, the one we were talking about last week, the living stone, faith has an object. And this is important, friends, because true faith, true belief, is who God has shown himself to be, not who we want him to be. It's so easy today and so common as you look around you know, teaching and books that are published, people have imagined how they want God to be, and they kind of imagine him to be that way and believe that way. But true belief is in who God has revealed himself to be, not who we want him to be. That's the first component. The second component of faith is accepting those things as true. Lots of people have heard the knowledge of who God is, but true faith is not just knowing about it, it's accepting them as true, accepting the revelation of God. So it's knowledge of who God has revealed himself to be, it's accepting that as truth. But there's a third thing required for true faith, because if you think about it, Satan and the demons, they have knowledge of who God is, they know it's true, but the third aspect of belief or faith is a trust, and by trust, a committing yourself to this God who's revealed himself to us, putting ourselves completely in his hands, trusting him with our salvation, but trusting him with our entire entire lives, knowing who God is, accepting it as true, and then trusting ourselves into his hands. And true faith in Scripture, true belief in Scripture is not a one-time thing. Faith is not something we did in the past. It's something that we are still doing, knowing him and keep on knowing him, trusting him and keep on trusting him, accepting as true and keep on accepting as true. Look back at verse 4. We saw a picture of this last week as we were looking at the verses before this. As you come to him. Now, remember, come in the Greek is in present tense here. That believing is a daily coming to Christ to know him for who he's revealed himself to be. It's a daily believing what he has revealed about himself. It's a daily trusting him with our whole lives. Even if life is hard, even if life is full of trials, we still are trusting ourselves into the hand of God who has revealed himself to us. So first question in terms of the response of belief, what does it mean to believe? Is to daily trust Christ and to keep on trusting in Christ. First question. Second question now, what are the results of that type of belief or that type of trust? Look at verses 6 and 7 here because they flow together and it's two sides of the same idea here. Pick back up at the end of verse 6. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. Let me just pause right there. Some of you read out of different translations. I'm reading out the English Standard Version. Some of you may have translations say something about precious, that Jesus is precious to you and I Know why that's appealing to the translators, but that's not what this word is here in the Greek. The word here is, in fact, in verse 7, honor. This word is used over 40 times in the New Testament. 
It never means precious. It always means honor. This is a, in a lot of other cultures outside the U.S., there's a shame-honor aspect to the culture, and this is what Peter's picking up on here. The opposite of shame is honor, and so as this flows together here, he's saying whoever believes in Christ will not be put to shame, and instead they will receive honor. These go together. Now, what in the world does it mean that if we believe the results of belief is no shame but honor? Well, let me tell you what it's not. That is not a promise for this life now. That's not a promise that if you trust in Christ, you're going to never feel shame or embarrassment in this life, that you're going to be honored and you're going to be honored in your finances and honored in your health, that this is not what this is about. This is a future tense promise. The, the big word, if you want, is an eschatological promise, an end times promise. This means at the time of judgment, true believers, people who are trusting and still trusting in Christ, will have no shame when they stand before God, no embarrassment when they stand before God. Why? Because their sins are forgiven. This is a promise for us that when we stand before God, instead of receiving shame, instead of receiving judgment, we get honor because Jesus' honor has been given to us. Jesus, the true honored one, now gives us his status. So at the day of judgment, we stand confidently before the Lord with no embarrassment, no shame, because we receive Christ's honor. So what does it mean to believe? It means to trust Jesus every day. What is the result of true belief? We get honor at the time of judgment. We receive forgiveness and a new standing before God. Third question for this first response to the gospel. Why do we believe? Why do we believe? Friends, we do not believe because we're smarter than others. We do not believe because we're more spiritual than others. We do not believe because we were seeking God. The reason we believe has absolutely nothing to do with us. We believe quite simply because God chose to give us faith. We believe simply because of the mercy of God, no other reason. Now, Peter doesn't directly say that in these verses. He's going to say the flip side of that when he talks about why people do not believe. We'll get to that in a minute. But he's already shown us why believers believe. Go back to verse chapter 1, verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. I think we have that up there for you. We don't have that one up there for you. There he goes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. The reason you and I believe is not because, again, we're great, we're amazing, we're seeking. We believe because he put his mercy on us. He has caused us to be born again. It's all of his grace in giving us what we do not deserve. And friends, he's giving us what we were not seeking after. Now, I know you are nice people and you are smart people, but you were not seeking God before you were saved. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Romans 3, 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Verse 11, no one understands, and quite simply here in the Greek, no one means no one, okay? This is big, expansive means everyone, you and I are in view in this. No one, notice this, no one seeks God. Before Christ, you and I were not seeking after the Lord, apart from what he was doing. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul can't get any more clear here that the reason you and I believe has absolutely nothing to do with us. We were not seeking God. We were not good people. That we're not believers because of those things. We are believers simply because God sent the good news to us and opened our eyes. None of us chose to be born in a place where there's the gospel, we could have been born in a part of the world like we pray for where there is no gospel in us. None of us chose to have someone bring the gospel to us. Whether it was a parent, whether it was a Bible teacher, whether it was a Sunday school teacher, whether it was a neighbor or friend, none of us chose to have the person bring the gospel to us. None of us were pursuing God, but God instead pursued us. He brought the gospel to us. He opened our eyes to the truth, to accept it as true and to believe. And through the Holy Spirit, he turned us to him. That's what we call grace, his unmerited favor 
to us. So what does it mean to believe? To trust Jesus every day. What is the result of that belief? Honor at judgment, forgiveness, new standing. And why do we believe? Because God chose to give us his grace and not leave us in our sin. One last question for us as believers. Why do we need to be reminded of this truth? Why do we often use the expression, we preach the gospel to ourselves every day? Why do you and I need to be reminded of this? Now, there's lots and lots of reasons, but look back at verse 7 here. The honor is for you who believe. Why do we need to focus on that? I want to suggest just two reasons this morning that there's many more we can say. Number one, this frees us from self-sufficiency. This frees us from self-sufficiency. We've been talking in the men's Bible study on Wednesday nights recently about how so often in our culture we see the gospel as the door to get us into the kingdom, and then that's it. Friends, the gospel is what I need every day and what you need every day. We do not get to God through the gospel and then become self-sufficient where we try on our own to become holy and try on our own to pursue God. We do not have any self-sufficiency. And so the truth of God calling us himself of our salvation being all of God reminds us of our absolute dependency on God. We bring nothing to the table besides sin. God does the rest. And so so remember that truth. It drives us to dependency on him. It drives us to scripture and to prayer and seeking the Holy Spirit to lead and to guide us. It frees us from self-sufficiency. But number two, This truth is here to encourage us. We need to remember this truth because it encourages us. Friends, life is hard. Many of you are carrying heavy, heavy burdens, as did Peter's original readers. Many of Peter's original readers were isolated. They were persecuted. Life is hard for us. And when we remember the truth that God has set his affections on us and he has pursued us and he has forgiven us and that the day is coming, he will honor us at the time of judgment. That reminds us, friends, those hardships that we walk through now are not God rejecting us. Those trials we're going through now are not God not loving us, but they're, they're rather they're part of his good and sovereign plan for us to make us who he wants us to be. Look back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, when he's reminded us about faith and trials. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So again, the idea that God's going to get us from birth to death in the safest, happiest, easiest, most comfortable way possible is not scripture. We will have trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. And so when we think about these truths, it reminds us that God is with us and using the trials, but it also reminds us those trials are temporary. The day is coming, friends. We have that inheritance that Peter's been talking about when we are free from suffering and free from the trials there. And so we need these truths to be encouraged when life is hard. We need these truths to free us from self-dependency and self-sufficiency. Friends, that's only half of what Peter does here, because remember, Peter's giving us a contrast. That's for those of us who say, yes, I am trusting Christ. I know who he is. I believe it's true. I'm trusting and relying on him. This is what we receive. But there's a second type of response to the gospel. We need to unpack that one next. The second response to the gospel is to not believe, to not believe. Go back to verse 7 of our text here, and you'll see the contrast. So the honor is for you who believe, but, here's the contrast he now paints, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So let's take those same four questions we just asked about believers. I want us to ask them here about non-believers. First question, what does it mean to not believe? What is Peter talking about here when he says not to believe? There's two phrases Peter uses that clarify what he means by non-belief. The first is unbelief is a rejection of Jesus. Unbelief is a rejection of Jesus. Again, look at verse 7 here. For those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected 
has become the cornerstone. Now, this is the, he's drawing from the imagery we explored last week in verse 6 about this chosen cornerstone here. But it reminds us that Jesus is God's plan for salvation. It's God's plan for the only way to be forgiven. But many people reject him. Many people refuse to believe in him. But you see here in verse 7, this, you see in quotes there, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's quoting Psalm 118. But Peter's not the first person to quote Psalm 118 here. Jesus quotes it as well to talk about the religious leaders. Matthew chapter 21, verse 42. Jesus said to them, these are to the Pharisees, the religious leaders at the time, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So Jesus is applying it to himself. And then verse 45, a few verses later in Matthew 21, and the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable. They perceived that he was speaking about them. They actually figured it out that time. Yes, he was in fact talking about them and their rejection of himself. And he was using their scriptures to show that. But Peter now takes this where Jesus applied it to the Pharisees at the time. Peter now applies it to everyone who rejects Christ. Back in verse 7, for those who do not believe, those now is anyone who does not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. To not believe is to reject Jesus, is to reject who he claims to be, God himself, is to reject what he claimed to do, to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, is to reject his claims on our life where he calls us to submit to him with everything in our lives. And friends, like I mentioned earlier, there's no middle ground here. And to people who say, oh, I'm still thinking about Jesus or I'm interested, but I, I'm not sure if I believe yet, friends, that falls under the rejection category. There is no neutral ground here. If you say, hey, I'm still considering Jesus, but I'm not there yet, that is a current rejection of him and his lordship. We either believe and trust, or we do not believe and we reject. And there's a second phrase here that Peter uses to describe unbelief. It's not just rejection against God. It's also rebellion against God. It's not just rejection. It's also rebellion. Unbelief itself is active sin. Go down to verse 8. He says, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense they stumble because they disobey the word. Notice how they stumble because they disobey the word. The word being the gospel message of who Jesus is and what he did. The word being God's revelation of himself in all of scripture. And how do non-believers respond to the, the word? They disobey it. Because disobey means active rebellion. Again, we need to let that sink in here. This is not some passive thing to go, I'm not sure about Jesus yet. He says, if you don't believe yet, if you're not trusting fully in him, you are disobeying the word. It is a rebellion against God, a decision not to submit to Christ as the Lord, a decision to ultimately be our own God instead and make our own path. The non-belief is both rejection of Jesus, who he is, what he came to do, his cause of lordship over, as well as rebellion against God and his word and his plan. Now, a sobering reminder for us about non-belief here. This response is made by both the godless and the religious. This rejection of Christ, this rebellion, happens from people inside the church and outside the church. This is not just the response of atheists, though it's that. It's also the response of many people who think they are actually okay with God. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. These are some of the most terrifying words in all of Scripture. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's just pause right there. That means there's many people, and if apply that to our context, say, Many people who prayed the sinner's prayer who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Many people who walked an aisle, shaken a pastor's hand, been baptized, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, but it's the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22, he carries on. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Verse 23, he hears about And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. With people inside and outside the church are rejecting Jesus and rebelling against him. Some think they are okay with God. So what does it mean to not believe? It means to reject and rebel against God. Question two, what are the results of this type of unbelief? What are the results of unbelief? Go back to verse eight here. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word here. Notice the word stumbling here. He's referencing Isaiah chapter eight, verse 14. He's showing us the consequence of unbelief is stumbling. Now let's clarify this image here. When I think of stumbling, I think of going backpacking because I love being out in the woods. To me, stumbling is there's a little root in the trail. I trip over, I start to fall, I catch my balance, and I move on. Or we're going for a family walk, and I trip over the uneven part of concrete, but I catch my balance, and I move on. That is not the image for stumbling here. The stumble here means to fall, to fall completely, and to never get back up. This is like a fatal stumbling. This is a complete fall. This is an image for judgment. Remember, Peter's doing a contrast here. So he's shown us honor at the time of judgment for believers. Now he's saying stumbling for non-believers because there will be judgment when they stand before God. Notice how Jesus explains this image. We looked at Matthew 21 earlier, but Matthew 21, 43 and 44. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. The religious leaders who had rejected him will be given to a people producing its fruits. Now verse 44. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus takes this cornerstone imagery again. He says, if you trip over me, if you don't believe in me, if you trip over me in such a way that you reject me and you rebel against me, you will be broken to pieces and I will fall on you and crush you. This is the image of Jesus being the one at judgment, crushing those who have rejected him, who have rebelled against him. This is a terrifying picture of ultimate judgment. Go back to verse eight. A stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, they stumble They will be judged because they disobey the word. This is the image of a person standing before a holy God, being condemned for their rebellion and sin, being condemned for their rejection of Christ. Romans chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 explains this for us and gives us a picture of it. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. And once he renders the verdict of that judgment for those who are guilty is eternity in hell. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Jesus will say to those on his left, those who are not believers, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. Friends, we don't like to think about this often, but hell is a real place. It is not pretend. It's not just something in cartoons. It is horrific. It is a place where people who have rejected God and rebelled against God who do not believe in him spend eternity being punished for their sins. That is the end result for every non-believer. So what does it mean to not believe? It is rejection and rebellion. What is the result? It is judgment by God for all eternity. Third question, why do people not believe? Why do people not believe? Now, we're going to find the answer in verse 8. Now, let me say something at the outside of this. Verse 8 is a frustrating verse for many people, but let me do my best to explain what you're seeing here. This is two sides of one coin. So if you think about a U.S. quarter, there's two sides of the quarter. You can't have a quarter with just one side of it. Both sides are part of the same quarter. They're not two different ideas, but they're all part of the same coin here. That's what we have. You have two different ideas. 
They're not competing against each other. There are tiny, finite brains have a hard time understanding how they fit together. They're the same quarter, and they go together. So what are the two sides of the quarter? Why do people not believe? Number one, they do not believe because they choose to sin and reject God. They choose to sin and reject God. Verse 8, that first phrase, they stumble because they disobey the word. We just looked at that phrase. This is act of rebellion. Non-believers love their sin instead of loving God. They live with themselves at the center of their lives instead of following God's will. They love being their own God. And so this first phrase here in verse 8 here is telling us they disobey the word. It's reminding us that they are non-believers because they love their sin and are rejecting God. Romans chapter 1 gives us a picture of this. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteous men who knows this. By their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Loss is not just some passive thing. In our hearts, we want to be our own gods. We want our own sin. We love our sin. We don't want God, and so we suppress it. What can be known about God is plain to them. We'll see there's other parts of Scripture and in Romans that God has revealed himself in creation. God has revealed himself through our consciences, and lost people suppress the revelation of God in their hearts. They suppress the revelation of God in creation, and if the gospel is made to them, they suppress that as well. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things have been made. So they are, this is without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their understanding, in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And verse 22 summarizes up, claiming to be wise, they became fools. This is just a description of verse 8 here. They disobey the word. They've chosen to reject the revelation of God. They've chosen to reject the gospel, so they are fully responsible for their own sin. But if you flip that coin over, there's a second reason why they are not believers. Look at the last phrase of verse 8. Go back to verse 8 here. They'd stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. As they were destined to do. What in the world does this mean? Friends, every time the word destined appears in Scripture, it shows what God has chosen to happen It shows what God has appointed to happen. You never see the word destined in terms of God responding to what man has already done. This is a word that shows God as the absolute sovereign ruler charting the course of human history. In other words, what Peter is telling us here is they remain lost because God has chosen to leave them lost in their sin. Second reason why they're lost is because God has chosen to leave them lost in their sin. Now, we need to be clear here. This does not make God the author of evil. God is holy, God is perfect, and God will never, ever, ever tempt anyone towards sin or evil. James chapter 1, 13. We saw this when we walked through James several years ago. But no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God never is the author of evil. But in his sovereign plan, he has chosen to leave some lost people lost in their sin under his wrath. Now, that is hard for us, friends, and I understand that, but we must realize there's nothing unjust about God doing this. He is simply giving people what they deserve. Remember, they love their sin, their love going their own way. When we think about this and God not giving salvation to certain people, we kind of picture a group of Sunday school kids sitting around singing Kumbaya and God being like, nope, I'm not going to save you. That's not the image here. The image here is people shaking their fists at God going, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, and God saying, I'm going to let you persist in that way. This is what Paul teaches in Romans 9, verses 15 to 18. We see the holiness and justice of God in leaving people lost in their sins. In Romans 9, 15, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion, verse 16. So then it depends, here it is, not on human will or exertion. That's what we were saying earlier about where our salvation comes from. If we're in Christ, it depends on God who has mercy. 
Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And verse 18, so then he, God, has mercy on whom, whoever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, again, in our American culture, we go, mm, that's not fair. I don't like that. That's not an American culture thing. People didn't like it when Paul wrote this. So notice how he bookends this text. Go back to verse 14, right before the passage we just read here. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? He says, by no means. And then right after what we just read, go to verse 19 and 20 of Romans 9 here. He will say to me then, why does he still find fault? In other words, how can people still be guilty if God has chosen to leave them in their sin? For who can resist his will? And then the answer he gives us is not the answer we necessarily want. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Of what does molded say to his molder, why have you made me like this? Friends, when we look at this coin, you may be going, I don't understand how people can love their sin and choose to reject God, but God is still sovereign over all that. I don't know how that fits together. And friends, that's okay. God's calling us to trust him in his word. Who are we to answer back to God? We don't have a God of our imagination who fits in our boxes. We have a God who is absolutely sovereign over all things, including salvation. The point here is nothing is outside of his control. So go back to verse 8. A stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So what does it mean to not believe? It's to reject and rebel against God. What is the result? It is judgment by God as eternity in hell. Why do they not believe? The two sides of the coin, because they've chosen to love their sin and reject God, but because God has left them in their sins and he's not turned their hearts to himself. Now, fourth question here, that's a hard truth. Why do we need to know this? Why do we need to think about these things. I'm going to give you two reasons. First, so we are not surprised when people reject Christ and reject us. We need to know this so that we are not surprised when people reject Christ and reject us. Friends, I don't know about you. I deal with people pleasing in my heart, and so there can be a naivety in my heart. Sometimes I think if I just am nice to them and I love them, I tell them how amazing God and his love is, they're just going to like me and they're going to believe and you know, That's not the way life works. And I think we all understand that, that we try to convince ourselves sometimes that's how life works. People will reject Christ and they will reject us. In the time of of Christ himself, people saw the miracles. We read about the Pharisees. They saw his power on display. They heard the authoritative teaching of, of God himself speaking to them and they walked away and did not believe. You look in Acts in the time of the early church and you have people who saw miracles. You saw people being raised back to life. You saw God's power on display in incredible ways as he established the gospel message and they walked away and did not believe. That means, friends, we should not be surprised when we present the gospel to people we love, when they, we share our testimony and plead with them and they turn their back and not believe as well. This is what Jesus said would happen. Matthew chapter 7 Verses 13 and 14 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. And in verse 14, he contrasts it. I think we have it up there. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And so we should not be surprised when people reject Christ, but friends, we have to take that one step further. We should not be surprised when they also reject us. Remember the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, and verse 11. One of the things Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, and notice this, on my account. If we follow Christ, one of the promises throughout Scripture is that we will face opposition from others because we belong to Christ. So we remember this truth about the reality of losses. One, so we're not surprised when people reject Christ in us. But with that, Number two, we need to remember this because it leads us to point them to Christ and to still 
pursue them. Friends, the reality of God's sovereignty over salvation does not lead us to passivity. Don't miss that. The fact that God is sovereign over our salvation, God is sovereign over what happens in people's lives, does not lead us to passivity because God not only determines the ends, he has determined the plan. And his plan is that he's put lost people in my life and your life for us to now take the gospel to. God wills to save some lost people through us. Friends, it's easy for me, perhaps it's easy for you to get complacent in our pursuit of the lost, to forget that they're rebelling against God. When you talk to someone you know who you love, who is not a believer, and they may be the nicest person you meet, they may be nicer than Christians you know, but in reality, they're rebelling against God. It's easy to forget that. It's easy to forget that these people we love and see day by day at work or at school in our neighborhood will stand before a holy God and give an account one day. It's easy to forget these nice people we talk to every day are going to spend eternity apart from Christ and hell. And so Peter reminds us of their destiny, reminds us of their fate, because we have a mission given by God to point them to Christ. That's where Peter's going to go next. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. We'll come to this one next week. You're a chosen race, a royal priest, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that, notice this, you may proclaim, you may shout out the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. Who do you shout it out to? Those non-believers who have rejected Christ and who may reject you as well. We still proclaim it to them. We'll get to that next week. And then in two weeks, we'll see from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, as he hears that thought on, keep your conduct among the Gentiles and non-believers honorable when they speak against you, remember this, they're going to oppose us as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of salvation. Now, with that in view, there's something in this text I do not want us to miss this morning. And it's easy to miss. I missed it till the end of the week on Friday as I was looking back through some things on this. The verbs that describe non-believers here are all present tense. It's their current state. In the Greek language which Peter writes, there is a tense which is a completed action with permanent ongoing results. That is not what Peter uses to describe the non-believers here. He uses present tense verbs. So go back to verses 7 and 8. For those who are not currently today believing, the stone that the builders today are rejecting has become the cornerstone. They today, verse 8, are stumbling because today they are disobeying the word. This means, friends, there is an opportunity of an invitation here. That God in his grace will work through us to take the gospel to people who are currently rejecting him, currently rebelling against him, currently disobeying his word to draw them to himself. And if they believe it has nothing to do with us, we're simply the mouthpiece. God has to do the drawing, but God plans to do the drawing through us. That's why scripture is full of the invitation to believe. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. One of many, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So for those currently not believing, for those currently disobeying the gospel, for those currently stumbling, we have a responsibility given by God to take the gospel to them, trusting that God will draw some of them to himself. And so we pray for them and we plead with them, even if they reject us, because we desire for them to have their shame turned to honor and their judgment turned to the forgiveness that we have. So what does it mean to not believe? It is rejection and rebellion What is the result? It is judgment by God for all eternity. Why do they not believe? Because they love their sin. They reject God, and God has not yet turned their hearts to him. And why do we need reminding of this? So we're not surprised when they reject the gospel in us, and so we pursue them with all of our might to point them to Christ. Well, let's try to bring all that back together. And it's a lot and a lot of weighty things. Here's again what I want us to see. The gospel requires from every person a response of either trusting Christ or rejecting him. Now, I want to add to that a question. What is your response? The gospel requires from every person a response. We're going to trust him or reject him. There is no middle ground. What is your response? 
And so I read this week and studied this week. I came across this quote, and it just the image stuck with me. This author writes this. Christ is laid across the path of humanity on his course into the future. In the encounter with him, each person is changed, one for salvation, another for destruction. One cannot simply step over Jesus to go on about the daily routine and pass by him to build a future. Notice that. Christ is on this path here. No one can just step across him unchanged. Whoever encounters him is inescapably changed through the encounter. Either one sees and becomes a living stone, or one stumbles as a blind person and comes to ruin. Read that again. Christ is laid across the path of humanity on his course into the future. In the encounter with him, each person is changed, one for salvation, another for destruction. One cannot simply step over Jesus to go on about the daily routine and pass by him to build a future. Whoever encounters him is inescapably changed through the encounter. Either one sees and becomes a living stone, or one stumbles as a blind person over Christ and comes to ruin. So friends, this is not just what's happening out there, but for you personally, the gospel requires a response of either trusting him or rejecting him. What is your response? Now, I know this is a weighty text here, and we need weighty texts like this. So before we sing this morning, I want us to have some time of reflection over this. So can I ask you just in a spirit of prayer to bow your heads and close your eyes, and I want our praise team to come on up as we begin to reflect. And so there's several things I want us to reflect and to pray about as you're sitting there. The first thing is I want you to reflect on that question. What have you done with Christ? Friends, you have not stepped over Christ. You have encountered him on the path. The fact you're here today, you've encountered him on the path, and it will change you. Are you being changed for salvation? Are you being changed for destruction? Now, as you're praying and reflecting that, especially to, to our teenagers and our boys and girls who are in the room here, I know that many, many of you have heard the gospel from your parents. You've heard it from your Sunday school teachers. You've heard it in your youth group. You've heard it. Where are you? Remember, there's no middle ground. There's no, I'm just still considering. You're either trusting or you're rejecting. That's not just for the kids and teenagers, adults as well. You've not stepped over Jesus. You've responded. So take a moment, and if you're not sure, ask God to make it clear. What have you done with Christ? Now, for those of you who are in Christ, you take a minute to just thank God for saving you. You are not a believer because you are smart and you pursue God. You're a believer because Christ pursued you and put his affection on you. So if you're a believer, take a minute and thank God for your salvation. But for those, if you are not in Christ, just take a minute and cry out to him and say, God, would you rescue me? Would you save me? Remember, there's an invitation in this text that if you're not in Christ now, that can change when God pursues you and turns your heart to him as you cry out to him in faith. So if you're in Christ, thank him for that. If you're not, ask him to rescue you. Now for fellow believers, don't you take a minute and think about your pursuit of the lost. How have you been praying for non-believers? How have you been sharing with non-believers? They may be friends, they may be coworkers, they may be neighbors, they may be random people, it may be your own family members. How have you been doing pursuing the lost? And if there's been a hesitancy or a timidity doing that or a lack of effort, confess it to God. God already knows and he invites us to be real with him. We don't have to pretend 
before God. So confess it and say, God, I have not done what I need to do in pursuing the lost I know. Would you help me? And if there are places, friends, where you have been witnessing well, ask God to bring fruit out of that. Finally, friends, we all know non-believers. God in his sovereignty has put people in our path, people we love, people we just may encounter. But friends, we can't change them. Only God can. But he calls us to make him known, and we trust him with the results. So would you take a few minutes and pray by name for people that you love and you know who do not know Christ, asking God to give them saving faith to take their shame and replace it with honor, to take their judgment and replace it with forgiveness, to turn their hearts to himself. Would you pray for them by name? you pray finally asking God to help you step out in true love for them to talk to them about Christ and to point them to Christ Father we confess that these are heavy things these are weighty things as we think about eternity think about your holiness think about your sovereignty Lord, we just confess and acknowledge, Lord, we don't want a God of our own imagination who fits our thoughts of what we want you to be like. We want to know you for who you have revealed yourself to be, who you really are. And so we just acknowledge at the outset as we wrestle with some of these deep, deep truths, Lord, our minds have a hard time getting around some of these things, but Lord, we trust you. We pray that you would help increase our knowledge of you, increase our faith, and Lord, help us see you for who you really are. And Lord, as we think about eternity, I pray you'd help us think about eternity. Lord, we tend to be such a short-sighted people who are so focused on the here and now, we forget about not only what awaits us with that inheritance we have that is imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for us, but Lord, so often we confess, we forget about the destiny and judgment and hell for those that we love who do not know you. Lord, forgive us for being short-sighted. Forgive us for our passivity of not pursuing those who we know are on a path to destruction. So where we've fallen short, we just confess that and ask for your mercy and grace, knowing that our standing before you is not based on how well we've witnessed for you this week or recently. Our standing before you is based solely on what Christ has done. And so when you look at us, God, we thank you. You're not up in heaven shaking your head at us, being like, mm-mm-mm, they have not done well. I thank you. You look at us and you see us covered with Christ's righteousness. So we can stand before you confidently forgiven no matter what's happened in our lives this week. Oh Lord, help us be thankful and appreciative and remember the gospel message has changed us and give us a passion and a burden to take that gospel message to the lost, whether in our own homes, or our neighborhoods, our school, our office, wherever you and your sovereignty have placed us. Help us this week pray for and plead for and talk with and point non-believers to you, Father, knowing that you've ordained not only the ends, but the means. So we confess our weakness to do that, 
But we ask for your help. We ask your Holy Spirit to fill us, to empower us to do what you have called us to do. And we'll give you the praise, Lord, for all that you have done and will do in these things. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask you to stand, please. We're going to sing this morning, proclaiming this gospel, reflecting on these truths with a song in Christ alone. And Christ alone is a declaration of our belief in Christ. But let's also be a declaration of our longing for others to find salvation in Christ alone. We're going to be singing phrases we've just been talking about. This cornerstone, this solid ground. Talk about how the wrath of God was satisfied in Christ. And even as you proclaim that line, Jesus commands my destiny. That's what we were just looking at here, that our lives are in his hands. So let's proclaim with faith and confidence that our hope is in Christ alone.
pray for us to close out. I know that as we talked about weighty things, we wanted to have a chance to pray with you. So I'd love for some of our elders to be available to pray with you after the service. And so Seth, maybe he could be up here and William down here and Greg, if you could be over here and CJ's over there by the double doors going out. Several of us are available. If we could pray over you and pray with you about any of these things, please let us know. We'd love to join you in walking this with you. So would you pray with me as we close? Father, we do thank you that our hope is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And pray what we've just sung would be our confidence this week, no matter what highs and lows we walk through, that we could say with confidence, we know that Jesus commands my destiny, knowing that we are held in your hands and nothing, nothing, nothing can snatch us out of your hands. Let that be our confidence and our hope today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Gateway family.